G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Today is Tuesday, the 19th of December and our topics this week are US style pickup trucks in Australia and could tiny homes be the future for many Aussies? Of course, we have our Two Ticks Town talk and then we'll jump into this week in Australian history and we'll finish off as always with a Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up with the last week. Adik, you've been in sunny Queensland. I have been in sunny Queensland seeing the uh, the, the opera, as regular listeners are uh, aware of Wagner's uh, ring or Doreen de Snibelungen. Uh Yeah, it was extremely good. Uh it was the second time I've I've seen it, and whilst the first time was uh, enjoyable because I didn't know anything about it, reading up and uh, getting a few details on this one, uh, it, it changed it. It changed it a lot. Actually, I was sitting there uh, as a couple next to me. They had German heritage, and they said they had seen this uh, particular opera seven times in the last thirty years. Which was what a cracker of an, wow. an, an effort, but yeah, it was. Uh, I can't remember whether I I mentioned it last week, but the uh, director was using these large LCD screens, probably about eight meters high, about twenty of them on on tracks and things, uh, and hanging from above, able to go up and down and showing it the uh, using that to sort of change the scenery and give different effects. So. I was I was super impressed with it. It was it was really um, yeah, it was a good experience. So much so that I think oh, possibly be tempted to see that one, uh, not not the same one I saw this um, uh, this one up in, in Brisbane. But the next time that that uh, particular opera's on, I thought hmm, could be tempted to see it uh, again. So we'll we'll we'll, we'll see. Uh, it is a a long effort. But then, yeah, got back here, got back home, uh, back down here, uh, down south on uh, the Saturday and just been running around trying to get ready for heading off to Sydney for Christmas tomorrow. So unsurprisingly, the, the grass had bloody grown. So yeah, I had, had a few hours of mowing and, uh, and trimming and stuff to do out there, but that's, that's good. It looks... It's going to look good for the neighbours. So when we get back from Christmas, I'll be ready to mow, uh, ready to mow again. But yeah, it's been a little bit of a, a busy thing coming back, but it was relaxing being away. And Southbank's a good part of Brisbane to to be, and Brisbane's got some great bridges too. I was yeah, it um, does it does yeah. yeah yeah. There's a few on Southbank, and also the Story Bridge, a well-known one that there went for a bit of a walk across across there. Um, so, yeah, it's been a good break and a good bit of a rushing around on for the next adventure. What about you? Well, I, by chance, was also in Brisbane. <laughs> um, and it was very busy. This time of year, Christmas, uh, it uh, just, we were down seeing some family. Um, and it was nice to see them. Uh, and then we're on to the Sunshine Coast uh, for, the, for the day. And, again... Just very, very busy, silly season, and silly us decided to go uh, to some of the major shopping centres and just 
bedlam, quite frankly. Um, oh, it's just not a good time of year yeah, oh. to do this sort of stuff, which, you know, we knew. Um, but it was nice to get home at the end of it uh, because just, you know, a little bit slower. But, yeah, it's always nice to get home. Um, I think a measure of where you live, if you, you go on holiday and you get home and you're still, you're pleased to be home and, and you, you know, yeah. all that stuff, it, it's a good it's a good way to measure uh you know how how good your house is and how good you, where you live is. So, um, a little bit of a holiday. We're not doing anything now until after Christmas, thank goodness. Um, and I'm doing a little bit of the same, sort of cleaning up and things like that. The we had a couple of big storms over the last couple of days. No damage, thankfully, uh, but a lot of rain. So the humidity is up. And uh, as a result, of course, the lawns have gone absolutely mental, which serves me right. It's partly my fault because <laughs> we were we, you know, as we'd spoken about in the podcast, the regular listeners will know we're supposed to be in uh, El Nino, uh, and so I thought what I'll do is a couple of months ago I was like I'll fertilize the lawn, I'll, we'll get this last bit of rain, and then it'll get its roots in good and strong, and then it'll go all dry and 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 sort of you know. I'm sort of protecting it over the dry period by letting it really get established mm. uh, more so than I normally would. But, of course, it hasn't been dry, uh, and all that fertilizer in the ground is just oh. making everything go crazy. Oh. Um, it's, not a, it's not a terrible problem to have, but I am a little bit sick of mowing the lawn uh, and, and just because it's so thick and, and all the rest of it. So uh, yeah. a good problem to have, but, you know. Silly me, you'll be, I guess. you'll be pleased once the rain, or once sort of the, the rain abates and that summer browning starts. Uh, I think you'll be pleased with, with that effort. We we did have it. Like, we, we went nine weeks without rain. So, oh, that's right, yeah. And now it's just come back. It's very unusual. Um, and, look, this might be a topic that we talk to because there is rumours about them undeclaring Nino and things like that. So we, this may be a topic that we talk about in the podcast. Oh, but I had okay. Well, I'll, I'll look forward to that. I hadn't I hadn't heard that one. Let's move on to our actual topic today, and yeah. we're talking about Australians. We love our Utes, so why don't we love US style pickup trucks? Backlash is mounting as the trend of large US-style pickup trucks continues to take over Australia, infuriating countless locals and causing havoc by taking up multiple parking spaces per vehicle. And I did actually witness this over the last week in both Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast. So I'll give you a bit of anecdotes at the end. Uh, But in 2021... Uh, General Motors Specialty Vehicles reported that 2,118 Chevrolet Silverado sales. And late last year, the 5,000th locally remanufactured vehicle came off the assembly line in Victoria. So that's a big jump. The Ram trucks revealed... in October 2022, that 604 units had been sold just in September, up 45% from 2021 year to date. With a total of 17,115 Rams sold to Australian customers since production began. We need to remember, and I think it's worth pointing this out, for especially for our American listeners that are thinking, what do you mean remanufactured? We are... 
uh, right-hand drive country. So uh, for these vehicles to be street legal sold as new, they need to be changed from left-hand drive to right-hand drive. So um, yes, in Australia, you can go and buy a Dodge Ram truck. That's right-hand drive. Cost your fortune, though. Uh, but while more <laughs> local motorists are embracing the trend than ever before, others are hitting back with vehicles uh, have become so ubiquitous that they've been giving given an Aussie nickname. Sorts of things. Uh, hmm. Well, it wouldn't be wouldn't be the old Yank tanks because it's been used for a while, would it? Yank Yank tanks is definitely one of them. I'll, I'll put yeah, that's uh, been you... around for a while since the old the 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 big cars of of old. Um, They're hmm. now being called em- emotional support vehicles. Ha! Uh, ha! Mockingly implying the owners of these vehicles only buy them to compensate for their own shortcomings. Ha! They're also, and I've, I have heard similar things mentioned uh, in the States. So uh, we're also costing us significantly more in road damage, of course, because these vehicles curb weight is roughly three metric tons without a load in the tub or without towing anything. So once you add a large trailer, which is most commonly the reason people buy them for their towing capacity mm. rather than their uh Load the amount of load you can actually put in the back of them isn't as good as say like a Toyota seventy nine series or even some of the I think the Toyota Hilux actually has a a higher payload capacity in the tub than than these American pickup trucks but but they are very very good for towing so of course once you add a trailer or or a load in the back you're increasing the weight even more and these damage the roads that they're driving on and. I'm an avid four-wheel driver, and <laughs> they're really annoying when you uh, find them on the tracks off-road because not only are they actually pretty crap off-road, uh, they often, they're, too, they're, they're a lot wider than the wheelbases for most vehicles that are going off-road in Australia, at least currently, uh, and as a result, they sort of chew up the tracks that they're on um, and kind of ruin can ruin the tracks for, for everyone else. So Also, the just the weight of them as well um can do that as well so i think the solution is pretty simple because obviously there are a group of people that really like these vehicles but they are becoming quite a problem uh within within local areas because our streets and parking are just simply not designed for them as i said Anecdotally, when I was in uh, Brisbane, we there was one doing a U-turn on a reasonably busy road and basically shut all traffic down while he did it because his vehicle was just too too big. He couldn't do a three-point turn. He had to do like a 10-point turn. Also, probably couldn't really drive it very well, if I'm honest. And in the Sunshine Coast, when we were at Sunshine Plaza, which is a large shopping center there, there was one parked, literally taking up four car parks uh, because he was just too big to fit in a regular one. And when that shopping center was very, very busy, no one liked the guy that parked his Dodge Ram taking up four, four car parks. And I'm sure actually the center themselves probably don't like it as well because it limits the amount of cars that can actually get into the shopping center as well. Um, I think the solution is pretty simple. We just need to treat them as trucks, like actual trucks. Uh, require them to have a, a light, rigid truck license. Uh, with that comes a zero breath alcohol level. 
so you cannot drink and drive at all. Normally in Australia, we have a 0.05 limit for open open license drivers, uh, but I think with truck licenses, it's often zero. Uh, and just slap them with higher fines for traffic offences. Um, increase their registration fees and limit their speed limit to 110 kilometers an hour, like a lot of the trucks are as well. That's going to stop a lot of these people flying down the highway. Actually, when I was driving back from Brisbane, we saw one doing... I was doing the the, the speed limit, of course. I would never speed. Huh. Uh, but this bloke was probably doing about 140, 150 uh, in, a, in a vehicle that big. Uh, you can imagine if he hit something, it would be pretty catastrophic. Uh, and, and basically, I do think they should probably ban them from shopping centers or have a quarantined little car park out the back or something where they have to go um, because they can't fit very well f- for the existing in- infrastructure. I think if we, if they did things like this, the sales will drop down for the, for the people that just want them because they have insecurities. Uh, but the people that genuinely need a truck will actually go out and buy like a Hino or a Fuso or something like that. They'll buy an actual truck rather than one of these. Um, I think a lot of people are doing it because they want to buy really, really big caravans. We've seen that post-COVID. A lot of uh, people have had a lot of money. Suddenly they're spinning up and buying really big caravans and finding out that their vehicles are inappropriate to tow. So from that point of view, I think these are these vehicles are quite good. That people are being safer towing vehicles and not overloading smaller vehicles, which we do see a lot of. But I think there's a there's a sort of like a catch twenty two because obviously these vehicles are very big. They're not really well designed for Australian needs because they're not designed for Australian needs. They're designed for American needs, which are very different to what we have here in Australia. Yeah, look, I probably come from the school of saying it's no one's freaking business what some what sort of car someone wants to to drive i get some of the frustrations that you're you're saying there i think the as as the government regulations have been tightening up and um on what's considered a safe towing load then the vehicle size has to increase accordingly you can't you if you want to actually tow a decent size um van or um yes well i suppose it's usually a caravan or or boat a large boat yeah a really big boat yeah yeah and you don't want you don't want to you know be losing licenses and getting massive fines um you sort of have to go up to that size of things now you can probably argue well in the past, people uh, were dangerously overloaded. I would like to see the statistics, really. I don't know what the statistics are. Someone might show them to me and I might be uh, convinced that it was a particular problem. Um, however, I tend to think there's a, a an issue with, with government regulations pushing that through on there. Um, I get what you're saying about the, the car parking spaces. Um, and I don't know how many, well, I don't know, I suppose I don't know how much of an issue it actually is because it's one of those confirmation bias things that if you don't like the big, um, the big, the the big SUVs, then you tend to notice them more. Same way as, you know, if someone doesn't like a particular brand of car, they'll notice it more and every, 
every error, every sort of slight parking out of the, the, the line or doing something silly. It's so like, oh, well, there's another, you know, insert whatever driver in, in there. Uh, look, I do, I do get that they uh, cause those issues, but I, my understanding is they're also within the legal specifications of how big a car could, a car can be. I don't really consider the. I, I know they sort of get called a, a truck. I can't get on board with your um, calls for different licensing and essentially, essentially, you're echoing what I have heard other people say, which is let's take a a punitive approach to this in order to to solve the problem. Because I mean, it's not as if they are the biggest vehicle on the road, so you can still um, you can still have large vehicles with large mass. I personally think a lot of it is because of the, um, the the size and how much of attention attracts. I mean, I look at them, I think, bloody hell, that's a huge, that's a huge car. Um, and you know, you comment about what happens on the four wheel drive track. Uh, that's yeah, that's an interesting comment. And I do get what you're saying about the the, the parking lots in shopping centres. You know, maybe you can have a, I don't know. Maybe you have a um, a, you know, a height limit on some things in there if you're wanting to sort of control for for cars like that. But I suppose the thing that I'm inherently pushing back on is it seems to be a I don't know. There seems to be a uh, othering of the the big US styled cars in order to. What I see is is more sort of like a a, a greener agenda and a, a divisive um, narrative being pushed. I'd agree with that. I definitely would agree with that. P- people look at this like there's a lot of people. Put it this way: you would think out of a lot of people, I would probably be someone that would be all for these uh, because. I love my Ute. I love my four-wheel driving. I'm very much an outdoorsy kind of person. Um, and this is kind of like more of that. Mm. The da- but the, in my mind, I look at it and go, it, it, it's too much only because the road infrastructure in Australia isn't designed for it. You know, they're, they're uh, but by contrast, uh, a 70 series Land Cruiser, like a 79 series Land Cruiser, um, which is probably the closest comparison we have in Australia in terms of, of vehicle capacity. Uh, it's got a towing capacity of, of three and a half tons. Now, most utes, including mine, uh, have a towing capacity of three and a half ton. However, I would never tow three and a half ton with my ute just because even though it's certified for it, doesn't mean it can actually do it in a, in a safe and, and consistent way. I think... With a 79 series Land Cruiser, the V8, you, you definitely could. Um, whereas a lot of these vehicles are four and a half to five ton towing capacity. So, as you said, if you've got a really big ute, uh, a really big boat, or, or like a car, excuse me, a car trailer or something like that, yep. having that extra capacity is definitely um, something that can be really useful. So, I definitely feel like there's a there is a there is a, a case for these vehicles being on the roads in, in Australia, and like you said, there are definitely bigger vehicles and everything like that. Um, I think my problem is is that people buy these and then act like it is a regular Ute, which it's not. Um, wow. But 
on the flip side of that, I come from it looking at it as an angry four-wheel driver going, eh, you're being a wank, you don't need that, let's be honest, you're never oh. going to take it off-road, and if you do, it's probably just going to get stuck. Um, you know, we we have a saying, uh, all the gear and no idea. Uh, yeah. But on the counter of that, I think where most people that hate these vehicles come from is exactly what you said, where it's more of a, oh, these are big gas-guzzling American uh, abominations and we don't need it. And I've heard a lot of times as well as people saying that they have massive blind spots and, you know, a kid could be in front of the car and you'd start it up and you couldn't see it over the bonnet and stuff like that. The reality is almost all of these vehicles have ultrasonic sensors yeah, in the front. Exactly. You're not, you know, you don't need to see if someone's in front of you because as soon as you turn the car on, it's going to start beeping at you saying, hey, dude, there's something in front of you. So I don't think that's a really good argument. Um, it actually kind of shows their ignorance, if I'm honest. And with, you know, multi-surround, like the ones that are importing here into Australia, I know in the US it's, it is a bit different, but the ones that are being imported here into Australia are more of the higher spec models because right. they do come with, a v they, you know, they attract a very high price tag. And as a result, the sort of people that are buying them are generally a little bit wealthier, probably a little bit older, um, and are buying, you know, they're spending $150,000, $200,000 on a vehicle. Um, you're not, not going to have all the extra features like the multi-surround cameras and, you know, no. all the fruit and things like that. So yeah. um, I, I get the hate from both sides. I, I feel like we should regulate these a little bit better just because they're almost they're too popular and they're freaking everywhere it's where i live and it's becoming oh. really annoying um just, what, what, the, just to go back what did you mean the uh road infrastructure is not built for them like uh the width of our roads for example not not the road capacity because obviously there's a lot bigger vehicles a lot heavier vehicles that drive on our roads um th these definitely the weight of these definitely does add wear and tear on smaller suburban streets that generally aren't uh built for continuous uh heavy vehicle drive you know right. driving on them yep. compared to say like you know like busier roads have a bigger road base and things like that they're designed for heavier they're meant to last longer, blah, 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 blah. Hmm. Um, these are significantly heavier than most quote-unquote regular cars or vehicles. Um, th they're a lot longer and they're wider. So you can't park them in a regular car park. Um, I, I have a – this is a bit of a sore point for me because my local Bunnings only has a handful of trailer – parks where you can yep. you know drive through with a trailer and very often these are parked there with no trailer attached just because they fit there um and uh, they don't want to park i can understand that being annoying look i, I do i do get the parking thing you know I, I, whilst i've i've got the attitude i've got i'm not blind to some of those issues and i i think they are frustrating i do hear what you mean though like why should I tell you what you can and can't drive? People have told me my car's too big. And I'm like, exactly. you know, get stuffed. I'll drive what I want. Da, 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 da. I have a friend that has a Unimog, an ex-army Unimog. I mean, that thing's an actual truck, but it's huge. Um, you know, you need a bloody ladder to literally climb into it. Yeah. Um, it's awesome. It's so much fun. Uh, but again, that's not his everyday driver. That is 
for a very specific use case type stuff. It's more of a toy, if I'm honest. Um, Whereas these, you know, are driven every day. It becomes a problem. You go to the shops. I wonder how many are actually driven every day or how many are like, well, I'll – I'll take it out. I'll stop at the, the the shops, or it's sort of a it's a seldom used second car, but sometimes it goes out. Um, how, how do you know that a lot of these are being driven every day? I know personally. I know two people that own Dodge Rams, and that's their only vehicle. So they oh, okay. drive it every day. Yep. Yeah, but again, you're right. There's some of these. I, I did have a client that had one. Um, this is going back probably five or six years ago. I don't think he has it anymore because he had a very big boat. He had a four ton boat. That, yeah. I think it was the biggest size boat you could get on a trailer, and so he had an older uh, Dodge that he would. Uh, it was imported. It actually was left-hand drive. So for him, he was like, I don't really like driving unless I have to. Um, and so that was a second car. And it didn't. It only got driven on big highway trips when he'd go up north for fishing and stuff like that. So right. I think there's a bit of combo between the two of them. Um, and honestly, I think there is a lot of people that just they just think they're cool. And so they buy them because they can. And then there's a lot yeah, of salty which I can, people. I can understand I can understand as well. It's the same way as yeah. you know, there's there's people you know, people buy um sports cars that go to you know, speeds that you're never going to be able to do on the uh the road and that they probably aren't going to be going specifically out to a track, but you know, just like the the feeling of the look at of it and you know they cop just as much derision and just as much of the um oh well you're compensating for for something by these you know miserable little inner city wretches who just can't understand <laughs> that people have different opinions to what they do um and i think well why not if you want to buy it freaking go for it i think there's also quite a lot of uh envy because, you know, some of these vehicles yeah, cost yeah. several hundred thousand dollars. You know, there is a big division, as we'll talk about later. Uh, we're in a housing crisis and things like that. So there's a lot of people that are doing it tough and they turn and they look at these vehicles and there are a lot of them on the roads. There have increased in numbers recently. I also, and I'm not 100% sure about this, so don't quote me on this, but I don't know if they they attract luxury car tax because they're a light like they're like a light truck. Yeah. Utes are like that because they can be classed as a commercial vehicle. They don't attract luxury car tax, which is a ridiculous thing we have in Australia where they tax vehicles. I think it's over $70,000 or maybe it's $80,000. Um, wow. Is so it still think, that low? Yeah, it is quite low. Um, so I, I would imagine that's part of the reason these are so popular because you get a lot more money. You get a lot more car for your money because of the way the taxes work here as well. So I think there's a few things kind of coming together. I don't like them because they're annoying me on the four drive tracks and parking is annoying just because there's a couple of tradies that have them and they go to Bunnings and they're in my way. That's basically my, that's my problem with them, right? Um, <laughs> there's a lot of other people that don't like them for for a number of issues that we've that we've spoken about, but. Um, oh, fair enough. Okay, yeah, I can see that. It's not going to change anytime soon, I'm sure. But let's move on. It's time for our Two Ticks Town Talk. I've been everywhere, man. This week, we're going overseas. We're going to an island. And this time, it's actually really far from the Australian mainland. We're going to the Cocos Keeling Islands. So... 
if you're listening and you're not driving, go grab a brew, a beer, or a rum, whatever takes your fancy, because this is a bit of a story, be a little bit of a longer one for our two text town talks. So the islands are an Australian external territory. They're in the Indian Ocean off Western Australia. And they're comprised of a small archipelago approximately midway between Australia and Sri Lanka, relatively close to the Indonesian island of Sumatra. So these are way out there. The territory actually has a dual name, as you probably picked up from the introduction. Officially, since the island's incorporation into Australia in 1955, it's had both names combined together uh, to be the Cocos Keeling Islands, as this reflects that the islands have historically been known as either the Cocos Islands or the Keeling Islands. So Australia very diplomatically just smooshed it together. (laughs) Some basic geography. The islands consist primarily of two flat, low-lying coral atolls with an area of about 14 square kilometres, which is about five and a half square miles, 26 kilometres of coastline, and an elevation at the highest elevation of five metres above sea level. So no mountains here. Uh, They're thickly covered with coconut palms and other short vegetation. It's roughly the main atoll is roughly a horseshoe shape with a number of smaller, thin islands around the outside with a big yellow lagoon in the middle. The climate is really pleasant, moderated by southeast trade winds for most of the year. In other words, this place is paradise. The archipelago was discovered in 1609 by Captain William Keeling of the East India Company on a return voyage from what is now called Indonesia. And of course, he named it after himself. We're we're seeing this is a common theme with these guys. Um, The islands were completely uninhabited. No humans had ever lived on the islands as far as we're aware. In 1825, a Scottish merchant seaman called Captain John Clunnies Ross stopped briefly at the islands on a trip to India, nailing a Union Jack and planning to return and settle on the islands with his family in the future. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, a wealthy Englishman called Alexander Hare had similar plans and he hired a captain who coincidentally was Clunny's Ross's brother so the other <laughs> to bring him and a volunteer haram of 40 Malay women to the islands where he hoped to establish his private residence now Alexander Hare apparently was very wealthy uh, I'm not going to go too much into him but Apparently, as it's quoted, uh, he could have afforded quite the estate in the UK uh, and lived very well for the rest of his life. So it sounds like he decided that he was going to live very well on these islands with a haram of 40 women uh, and just live out the rest of his life in paradise. Unfortunately... Clunny's Ross returned two years later with his wife, children, and his mother-in-law and found that Hare had established on the island and was living with his private haram. 
He didn't like that. And a feud grew between the two. I actually thought I'd read this excerpt from Joshua Slocum's novel, Sailing Alone Around the World, because this kind of sums it up quite nicely. On his previous visit, Ross had nailed the English Jack to a mast on Horsburgh Island, one of the group. After two years, shreds of it still fluttered in the wind, and his sailors, nothing loath, began at once the invasion of the new kingdom to take possession of it, woman and all. So things, things weren't going too well between the two. Uh, Hare attempted to persuade the sailors to leave him alone and actually sent over an offering of a pig on a spit and a bunch of rum. This did not persuade the sailors to stop at all. Um, And after some time, Hare's woman began deserting him uh, and instead finding themselves partners amongst Clunny Ross's sailors. Disheartened, Hare eventually left the island uh, and he died back in Indonesia in 1834. Though he, he actually did write a letter uh, to John before he left the island saying that uh, he, he felt that they should get along and he thought that giving them uh, pork and rum would settle them down. And John replied basically saying, are you stupid? Giving sailors <laughs> pork and rum is the opposite of what you should do if, they want, to, if you want them to calm down. <laughs> Um, uh, Ross, he, he recruited a bunch of Malays to come to the island for work and for wives. And the workers were paid in a currency called the Coco's Rupee, a currency that he minted himself and that could only be redeemed in the company store. So for, for people that remember their history, this is basically indentured servitude, um, On the 1st of April, 1836, HMS Beagle, under the Captain Robert Fitzroy, arrived to take the surroundings and to establish a profile of the atoll as part of a survey expedition of the Beagle. Now, Adit, do you know what the the HMS Beagle is famous for? The the Beagle does ring a bell as soon as you said that, and I have a feeling it was someone like Joseph Banks... Uh, or something took it on a, a an ex- expedition in Australia. Have I have I got that right? A bit more famous than Joseph Banks. It was the naturalist Charles Darwin who was oh, actually Darwin. Okay. He was aboard the ship at the time, and uh, he had developed a, a theory about how atolls had formed, which he later published. Uh, as the structure and distribution of coral reefs. And he studied the natural history of the islands and collected a number of specimens. So, Mm. bit of a famous uh, interaction there. The islands were formally annexed by the British Empire in 1857. This annexation was carried out by Captain Stephen Fremantle in command of the HMS Juno. The Fremantle claimed the islands for the British Empire and appointed Ross II... Uh, our antagonist's son as superintendent. The oh, islands so, part. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't really have mattered which one of them uh, put claim to it when the British Empire came along. It was, so sorry, old chaps, this is ours now. Yeah. And uh, John Clunny's Ross, they all name their sons after themselves. So as you'll see, 
even to this day, it's still it's this continual line of uh, of Johns. Um, so the islands were were made part of the Straits Settlement under the Order of Council in May 1903, but in 1886, Queen Victoria had, by indenture, granted the islands in perpetuity to John Clunnies Ross. The head of the family enjoyed a semi-official status as resident magistrate and government representative. Now, being the location where they are, of course, very very infamously, there were a couple of major global conflicts, uh, world wars, if you like, uh, that <laughs> happened not long after this. So what happened to these far-flung islands during the war? On November, on the morning of November 9th, 1914, the islands became the battle, the site of the Battle of Cocos, one of the first naval battles in World War I. A landing party from the German cruiser SMS Emden captured and disabled the wireless and cable communication station on Direction Island. Uh, But not before the station was able to transmit a distress call. An Allied troop convoy was passing nearby, and the Australian cruiser HMAS Sydney was detached from the convoy escort to investigate. The Sydney spotted the island and the Emden at 9 o'clock in the morning, and both ships prepared for combat. At 11.20, the heavily damaged Emden beached herself uh, on North Keeling Island. To be fair, the Emden didn't stand too much of a chance against the Sydney. Um, and the Australian warship broke to pursue Emden's support collier, which is like a refueling ship, basically, uh, which that ship scuttled itself as well. And then the Sydney returned to North Keeling Island at about 4 p.m. And at that point, Emden's battle ensign was still flying. This is usually a sign that the ship intends to continue fighting. And after no response to instructions to lower the ensign, two salvos were shot into the beached cruiser, at which point the Germans lowered the flag and raised <laughs> a white sheet. When you know you beat, you beat. Yeah. The Sydney had orders to ascertain the status of the transmission station, but returned the next day to provide medical assistance to the Germans. So the wreck of the Emden, well, what's left of it is still there. During World War II, not a lot super uh, interesting happened. Uh, There was definitely some fears that the Germans may come back again. However, uh, obviously, once Japan entered the war, um, the fear that the Japanese would... would, uh, come ashore but they didn't uh surprisingly that's basically all of world war ii not much happened uh on the 23rd of november 1955 the islands were actually officially officially transferred from the united kingdom to the commonwealth of australia immediately before the transfer the islands uh 23rd of november 1955 55 okay the islands were transferred uh, immediately before the transfer. The islands were part of the United Kingdom's colony of Singapore in accordance with the Straits Settlement Act 1946. In the 1970s, the Australian government's dissatisfaction with the Clarys Ross feudal style of rule on the island uh, was to be abolished. And in 19. 19- 78, Australia forced the family to sell the islands for the sum of $6,250,000 using the threat of compulsory acquisition. 
By agreement, the family retained ownership over their large house, which was called Oceania House, uh, which was their family home on the island. And in 1983, the Australian government reneged on the agreement and told John Clannery's Ross that he would have to leave the islands altogether. The following oh, year, the high wow. court... Yeah. The following year, the High Court of Australia ruled that the resumption of Oceana House was unlawful. But the Australian government ordered that no government business was to be granted to Clannery Ross's shipping cost company, an action that would con- contribute to his bankruptcy. John Clannery Ross later moved to Perth, Western Australia. However, some members of the family still live on the Cocos Keeling Islands. So oh. the Cocos Keeling Islands really is the tale of the Clannery Ross's family. Um, if you want to go there today, you can fly from Perth on Virgin Australia. I had a look at the tickets. They're not cheap. It's about two and a half grand wow. to get there. Um, I wasn't sure if that was a return flight. I hope it was a return flight. Um, oh. But it, but it is it is pretty expensive just because there's no one. Uh, there's, well, there's no competition at all, and they are, uh, as I said, it, very remote. They're, they're further out uh, than than Christmas Island is. So. Uh, they're administered by the same governor that administers uh, Christmas Island. Um, and, yeah, it's pretty chill out there. Not a lot happens. So They've had a lot of crazy history, but Is there a res- cool. resort or anything there? Like, uh, why would you go there? Basically because it's an island paradise. So, yes, right. there are – I think it's more like small cottages. Tourism isn't, isn't huge um, – you know, the, the tourism industry there isn't massive just yeah. because it is so remote. Um, but there are, there are like, little cottages and things like that. Um, I didn't see, like, a full-blown resort, but I might, I might be wrong. Um, interestingly, in 2018, the, uh, the Malay people, the descendants from the original uh, Malay uh, people that were brought over, uh, for work oh, yeah, yeah. and things are actually seeking to be recognized as, as indigenous to the islands. So I couldn't find a follow-up of where that went or how that was going. Um, I don't know what the Australian government's sort of like line in the sand for that sort of stuff is because a lot of these families, you know, can can claim that they've gone back well over well over 100 years, um, some, some 150 or longer. So... I'm not really sure exactly how that how that's worked out, but it does feel like a a uniquely different part of Australia. It's very heavily got an Indonesian and Malay feel to a lot of the places and a lot of the names as a result. So, well, in fact, wouldn't you if you if you did grant that you'd have to um, same thing to Clooney's Ross people because. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you said at the beginning that there was no one inhabiting the island. Exactly. Exactly. You would. Yeah. And they're obviously Scottish descendants, uh, descend from, from the Scots. So, yep. The, and this is why I, yeah. I, I don't know where how, how this is. Like I said, I couldn't find a, a, a source on exactly how this was ending up, but... Um, it would be quite an interesting and I think politically difficult thing to to agree to for, for a number of reasons. I think it would set a, yeah. a precedent that they don't necessarily want to do, but it does look like a really beautiful place. And I'd love to go there one day, but 
I don't know if that'll happen. Yeah, look, I went on to, to Google Maps when you said that just to get a bit of um, perspective and did the, the zoom in on the satellite. And yes, it did on the satellite version of the map. And yeah, it does look uh, it does look very idyllic with all those those beaches and um, you know, a bit of greenery and that. Yeah, I did look at it and I sort of thought, I wonder, um, I don't know, I, I suppose I'll, I wonder really what you would do there because they're not exactly huge. Did you no. have the, like from what I can see with a rough thing on Google, they can't be more than 10 by 10 kilometres. Yep. yep. Yeah. They're long, thin Islands. I, I think that's a yeah. Just... That, the, yeah, that's islands with with within that. But sorry, that that group together doesn't look like it cover more than oh. you know ten by ten. No, it's it's about uh, what did I say here? I think it's widest point. It's it's just under twelve kilometers. Okay. Uh, sort of wide by uh, what does it say? Just over sixteen. Okay. So yeah, it is. It is yeah, very small. Um, like I said, it's sort of horseshoe shaped. Um, and then the islands, of course, themselves are a lot thinner, and they're sort of only on the outskirts of the atoll. So um, not a lot to do. I think. I think the things to do are get in the water, fishing, diving, um, and just sort of embracing the the, the basic island lifestyle it, it very much yeah, reminds me yeah. I've, I've been to a lot of uh the south pacific islands and things like that in the past and it reminds me very much of, of quite a lot of these places um where it's just island lifestyle there's not a huge amount to do but that's kind of the appeal if you know what i mean um yeah. you don't necessarily yeah, do. want to do a lot so no just nice and nice and simple and if you put yourself in that um situation where there's not you know high levels of stimulation and whole lot of touristy things then you're really just there to enjoy that simplicity yep somewhere i'd like to go but yeah oh that's 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 interesting i didn't didn't know that history didn't know that they uh the government had shafted Clooney's Ross. I'd love to. I wonder what the real story is there. I, 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 you, you said something like they didn't like this, how he was governing it, but typically when you have one um, one government criticizing another government, there's usually something on going on behind the scenes. So I wonder if they pissed off the wrong person. Yeah, because I couldn't find too much about exactly what um, what he'd done. Uh, other than that, he was ruling basically the islands like a king, and they were just like, nah, enough of this. So I feel like there was some friction between um, basically a family that has essentially run the islands like a small kingdom for many generations, uh, and then, of course, you know, post-colonial era, all that kind of stuff. The government is deciding that it's going to shake things up, and I can see there's probably a lot of friction there, and as a result... Um, I feel like as well, you know, if you've got a patent from the Queen, uh, when did I say it was? 1886, uh, that had granted the islands in perpetuity. Yep. You know, and then the, the federal government goes, nah, and you're like, well... I've got this. I got this piece of paper. I can see why there'd be a lot of friction there. And at the end of the day, the Australian government 
can force its way on on a small island family of I I don't know how many there were, but I can't imagine it'd be more than say a couple of dozen at most. So yeah. you know, you just send one warship to do it up, and it's kind of like it's all over, you know. Well, look, that's that's right. And at the at the end of the day, uh, like the the mafia, if the government wants to take your uh, business or your property, they will. It's not much you can do. About I suppose it. just at least I suppose at least the the mafia is open about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's very interesting. I didn't know didn't know any of that. And when you you started off. Um, Say so I did, deliberately didn't look at the uh, the sources in the notes that you you sent through to me because I that's good to have it as a bit of a surprise. But when you started off Cocos Keeling Island, I thought, oh, I wonder where this is going to go because I didn't know anything about it. But yeah, it was interesting. Let's move on uh, to our second topic about tiny homes. Speaking of. Homes being taken from people, tiny homes on tiny islands. <laughs> tiny homes entirely. Hey, maybe there's an industry they need to look into. But <laughs> could tiny homes be the future for many Aussies? Australia's coastal cities and surrounding hinterlands have long been popular with tourists, sea changes, and retirees. But they have a darker side. Dun dun dun. In the early morning, you'll often find car parks crowded with. Cars, vans, caravans, sometimes even tents where refugees from the crising houses. Sorry, housing crisis? Crising houses? <laughs> crising houses. <laughs> uh, housing crisis. <laughs> I've spent the night. It is unfortunate. Um, and this was actually me last week. I was grumbling uh, because there were a couple of motorhomes in the car park along the beach in the Sunshine Coast uh, where myself and the kids were, were going to have some morning tea and they were taking up all the car parks and I was grumbling, but I did get talking to a few of them and they weren't travellers. They were locals who lost their home. Uh, their rental property had increased uh, that the property that were renting sorry uh, uh-huh. had increased significantly they did have uh, a motor home uh, I think they said a, f- a family friend or something gave it to them for a good price something along those lines and basically now that they're they're, they're uh, not homeless because obviously they have the van but they don't have anywhere to go yeah. um, and they move around uh basically every day looking for places and it is a bit of a um a bit of a event because of course council officers and police come along and move people along and all that kind of stuff so in australia um especially for our international listeners that don't know in australia it's it's it is very common to have uh public toilet facilities that include showers like cold showers um along uh our touristy areas particularly along the beachfront so you can sort of wash the salt off and all that kind of stuff um so a lot of these people were using those uh to, to actually get clean and everything like that so and sometimes these were people of all ages including families and some of them did have children um so it was very very you know sad to see and and of course mm. the these sort of people aren't uh they don't fit or conform to that homeless stereotype um these guys had jobs uh the children children go to school and a lot of people in this situation as well, they don't have serious mental mental health issue or physical health problems like we traditionally 
think of when we come to, to homeless people. They just simply cannot afford to find affordable homes to rent or have lost or are unable to, to purchase a home of their own. With soaring rates of housing stress uh, forcing Australians to explore new options, including living in smaller and tiny homes. But local councils don't really allow tiny homes or caravans to be parked on a long-term basis on property, even if you allow it yourself. Council comes along and says no. For example, a planner from a large regional city in New South Wales said that options like tiny homes were possible, and I quote, subject to approval and compliance with planning, environmental act, building act requirements, all need to be approved for permanent use and hence comply with the requirements for all dwellings. Which says to me, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Though things are changing slowly. In Victoria, uh, Mount Alexander Shire Council has approved an amendment to a bylaw that will allow residents to live in caravans and tiny homes as an ancillary dwelling on a block. Further south, the Surf Coast Shire is testing tiny homes in a two-year trial. And up my way, the Fraser Coast City Council in Queensland recently allowed property owners to accommodate family or friends in a caravan or on the dwelling allotment for up to six months of a 12-month period. So basically, you know, for six months of the year, you can park a caravan in your front yard and have someone live there and the council aren't going to bother you too much. Right. Um, the tiny house movement, despite its limitations, could help deliver some of the creative solutions to the housing crisis. It has sparked an important conversation about alternative housing solutions with broader implications for housing design, construction, regulation, finance, and insurance. A focus on good design, adaptability, and affordability can make smaller dwellings more attractive to more people. And assembling prefabricated components on site can really cut down the costs. Tiny homes can be deployed and redeployed quickly if necessary. And this is an important factor for areas hit by natural disasters like what's going up and going on up in Cairns at the moment. This small scale offers a way of increasing density sensitivity uh, in built up, already built up areas. So, you know, you don't want to build high rise, high density uh, buildings in a lot of previously built up areas or suburban areas. Uh, so the, you know, being sensitive to the local residents, we can kind of increase the density by say having a suburban lot or, or maybe two suburban blocks and then putting a number of tiny homes on it. I think, you know, the, these sort of ideas and the way that we can kind of cluster these tiny homes together to make, new little communities and things like that. Obviously, we've had, uh, you know, like caravan parks and stuff in the past. This isn't exactly a new idea, but it is a new kind of way of looking at it. Um, This is absolutely not my style of living at all, but I do see the appeal for for other people, especially, um, you know, if you are doing it tough financially or or maybe a bit more transient. Um, And I don't think this is... You know, this isn't the silver bullet to the housing crisis, but this definitely can be part of that conversation. It can be part of the reason. I was watching a video oh, a couple of years ago about a community that was built. I think it was in LA. It was in the, it was definitely in America, in California, where 
they had a, I think it was like an acre or maybe it was an acre and a half. It wasn't a huge lot. Um, just basically it started as a paddock and then a number of tiny homes uh, were relocated there over a period of time. And this whole little community kind of came about as a result. Um, and it did seem like a pretty cool little place uh, full of mostly younger people uh, living living all oh. together in a really uh, really cheap and and kind of eclectic way, um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't mind seeing things like that. I think there's a lot of places in Australia that kind of have that trendy vibe that I feel like something like that could kick off so easily and really thrive. You know. Yeah, yeah. Look, I can see that. As as we um, saw in the uh, the ABC article that was talking about this. This is something that can be tested small, you know, yes. with, you know either in a, yeah, in a single state or in a couple of rural areas and a, a city. And it's good to hear that we've got that um, couple of places you mentioned where there was the amendments to the bylaws and testing tiny homes in the Surf Coast Shire on a two-year trial. I was very heartened to read that because I think sometimes um, – Sometimes there's not a lot of out of the box thinking by by the bureaucrats. So something that's got a time limit and a sunset clause that can be put on, and then the results are evaluated. And if people are, are given those parameters, they can at least prepare for it. So if you think, okay, well, I've got I've got two years, I can uh, work with you know, my own property where I don't want to necessarily build, but do want to have a um, have it as my base, or you've got, you know, family and friends who said, "Look, we're happy for you to to put your tiny home or or self-contained van on the uh, the property for a couple of years." You can work with that, so that's they're positives. I'd like to see that a bit. I'd like to see a bit that a bit more because, yeah, understandably, it irritates me that there's restrictions like that on what you can and can't do on your, your land. And sometimes it just comes across as like bureaucratic stubbornness to pr- prohibit oh. a fully self-contained tiny house on the dwelling as uh, uh, on the land as a dwelling. I mean, I, oh, I completely <laughs> agree. It drives me nuts. It's like, this is my land. Yep. I've bought it. It should be up to me to decide what I do with it. And if I want to put a caravan, uh, look, I get it. If you put things in your front yard, you know, curb appeal and, and, and all that, I kind of get that. Yep. But but if it's in your backyard or something like that, I don't see why you shouldn't be allowed to basically do what you want to do. I, I could park a caravan in my backyard and have no one living in it and it would never be a problem. But as soon as someone starts living in that caravan that is designed for someone to live in it, now it's a problem. It's it's absolutely wild to me. I did, yeah, it is a great great example. It's a, it, it's only a problem until somebody goes goes in there, and then I suppose you, it's how does that get found out? But you know, sometimes you never know whether you've got um, all these sticky beak neighbours or uh, oh, yeah. people hear of it and they just uh, think, oh, well, we can't do that. That's against the that's against the rules, but that's a, a, a perfect example. It's it's fine until somebody's in there. Uh, so, yeah, look, that that side of it doesn't make sense to me. And if we're going to have this, um, uh, what do you call it, the crowsing crisis, the housing, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have, have the housing crisis uh, as something that's uh, on the the national problem. 
agenda. I personally think that there's there's room to give a little bit more leeway to experiments in this, and particularly as the the tiny. I'm like you, a tiny home. It's not my thing. The idea of being a tiny home just just leaves me cold. Uh, but having said that, I have seen stories on tiny homes. Um, that ABC article had uh, someone who I think they whatever his what was his name Martin Klusendorf, um, focusing on on him as an example of a tiny home, and he's got where are we? Just let me see. Has solar panels, yeah, completely self-sufficient. Solar panels for electricity, grey and freshwater tanks for water, and a composting toilet for for sewerage. Um, yeah. So think, he's self-contained, what, what, essentially. Yeah, ex- exactly. So how the hell can you? I mean, why can't you say okay? So what's wrong with him being on the his land? I mean, just because it's it's portable. Um, and just because this, just because it's not connected to the sewer or is not you know ticking these boxes because that um, I, I can't remember where you you read off one of the uh, the bureaucrats saying oh look it's perfectly okay we're in favour yeah. of it so long as they tick this 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 and this yeah. box and all this legislation which is you have a- approval and compliance with yeah. planning environmental act building act and it must be approved for permanent use and hence comply with the requirements for all dwellings. The requirements for all dwellings. And I think that's the problem because, you know, obviously a mobile home like a caravan or something like that, the 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 requirements to build something that, that can actually go on the road as a trailer are very yep. different from a dwelling that is permanently located for for a heap of reasons and i feel like that's where the problems come because obviously the environmental uh building acts and all of that kind of stuff are designed around permanent dwellings to do with you know it in up here in queensland it's to do with like uh, fire safety it's to do with cyclone and storm ratings and all that kind of stuff which of course these these yeah. are, are, are uh, you know like a caravan doesn't have any of that because it's not it, it's not subject to those things. No. So, but what kind of drives me crazy is for for decades and decades and decades we've had caravan parks which have had caravans drive up, jack them up, put cinder blocks underneath, take the wheels off. And they sit there for, for for decades and decades and decades, yeah. and it's not a problem. But all of a sudden, you know, a tiny house that's made out of timber is a problem. You know, it, it's bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake. It's very frustrating to see. But it, it is good that some that of these. Way. Yeah, it's good that some of these councils are doing it, but I think more need to. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd agree with you on that. And so I, I expect that there's going to be a bit more of a push as things get harder and and harder as you, you know, look, that was uh, sort of sobering to hear uh, your your comments on some of the people that you spoke to up on the um, the, the beachfront that, you know, they've got, they've got families there and still living their life. But, you know, a big part of their life is working out where they're going to stay the next night. I think sobering is a really good way to put it because it definitely, it sort of hit me like a ton of bricks actually because I got out of the car and I was kind of like annoyed going like, ah, bloody tourists. Meanwhile, I was also a tourist. Um, 
And oh, we're good. funny little monkeys, aren't we? Oh, yeah, we definitely are because you know I was there to to do to go to the beach and, and play on the playground with my kids, uh, and these people were sort of you know hogging all the hogging everything in my mind at least. Uh, but once I started having a chat to them and, and learning about exactly why they were here, uh, the sobering reality of of uh, you know, and their kids were like playing on the playground and stuff like that, and I was just like, wow. Um, Especially in a place like the Sunshine Coast, because that is an area, uh, for people unfamiliar, this is north of Brisbane, a couple of hours north of Brisbane. Uh, it, it always was quite a touristy area and like reasonably cheap, I think, for housing and things like that, because it wasn't in a major city. Um, but now it's kind of turned into a, almost like a mini Gold Coast. Like it's, it has been established quite, quite quickly. And I think a lot of people... Uh, I, I, it's not very affordable anymore. And as a result, a lot of people have kind of very quickly been pushed out of the market. Um, and as a result, you know, they, they, they've lived, you know, their whole lives in these areas and all of a sudden they can't afford to live there anymore. It's like, where do you go? I've always lived here. I don't have anywhere else to go. This is my home. And all of a sudden now I can't afford to live here. So, Particularly I've, if you've got a job there as well, as you said. Yeah, you know, and the kids go to school here and everything like that. It's like you've got deep roots in these areas and all of a sudden you basically got to pack up and leave or become a bit more transient uh, and, and really heavily rely on public infrastructure. It's it's a massive shame to see. Like, this is embarrassing for Australians. And I'm sure things like this are happening elsewhere in the world. But, yeah, it was very upsetting. And as you said, perfect, perfect word, very sobering to see. Yeah. Anyway. Let's move on to this week in Australian history, and hopefully some good stuff has happened. Okay, this week in Australian history, uh, we're covering 12th to 18th of December. So, December 12th. One of the most horrible, miserable things in Australia. <laughs> no, I just <laughs> joking, basically. <laughs> Uh, no, actually, this isn't super up, but it's it's not, no, it's not as uh, it's not as uh, sort of you know hit you as much as that story that uh, those stories that you had. Uh, December twelfth, nineteen eighty one, a referendum is held in Tasmania to vote for whether or not the Franklin Dam uh, should be built. So forty seven percent percent vote for the original proposal. 8% vote for the compromise solution and 45% voted informally. Uh, it's estimated that up to one-third of all the votes were for no dams, which was not a sanction option. So if oh. you were sort of, yeah. If I was going to say, what do you mean voted informally? But that, so they wrote it in there instead. Right. Exactly, they wrote it in there. So the story was that on the, uh, the, the state government had that referendum, they called it the power um, referendum. They're trying to break a, a deadlock um, with whether or not the the Gordon Below Franklin scheme was going to be going ahead, or whether there was going to be a compromise for the Gordon Above Olga scheme. Uh, and basically, they were saying basically the message was: Look, we're going to get one of the one or the other. Which one do you you want? And we're going to make it official by a referendum. Uh, so there'd been a significant campaign for the no voters, uh, for, for, for people to write no dams on their ballot papers. Um, and what have we got? And in total, more than 33% of voters did this. These were initially counted in the informal vote, 
but some were later recounted as formal as they also included a valid vote for one of the two dam options. Um, ultimately, though, the dam never got built after... Oh. Uh, yeah, there was a whole lot of action and interference by the federal government, Hawkey at that time. Um, you know, it was all uh, a, a big hoo-ha-ha about the the Franklin, Gordon Below Franklin Dam. So who knows if we'll ever cover that one. But, yeah, it was, it was a very uh, significant environmental victory. Uh, you know, I tended to sort of think, well, the federal government sort of, I remember even at the, the time uh, thinking, well, maybe the federal government should be keeping their nose out of Tasmania's business. But, uh, you know, it was around the time and Hawkey needed votes and there was a strong uh, support for it and there's a whole lot of um, objections to how it was going to be impacting the environment. So, uh, yeah, a whole interesting story, but basically the referendum didn't end up achieving anything. Wow. Yeah. December 13th, 1962, the last telegram transmitted within New South Wales using Morse code was sent from Sydney to Bombala. Couldn't find what it said. Um, <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah well, possibly it was that simple. <laughs> uh, 2005, Bradley John Murdoch is convicted of murdering Peter Falconio in the Australian outback while travelling with girlfriend Joanne Lees. And he was uh, one of the, that story is one of the ones that influenced the uh, uh, Wolf, movie, Wolf, Wolf Creek, Creek, isn't it? Yeah. 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 That was sort of a mix between him and um, Ivan Malat. That's it, it. Thank you. Yeah. The uh, Belangolo. Yeah. yeah. In the so, Bangalore State Forest. So, yeah. for our international listeners that have seen Wolf Creek and gone, ah, it's not, no, it's, yeah, it's, it has happened. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah, it has happened. In fact, it's based on two separate incidents. Yeah, so, it's, it's happened more yeah, than once, actually. <laughs> exactly. But come on over. <laughs> 2005 uh, Melbourne's Spencer Street Station is officially renamed Southern Cross Station December 14 1918 the first Victorian Farmers Union member is elected to Parliament as a result of the introduction of preferential voting I didn't actually realise that preferential voting had come in that um, that early yeah. But, yeah. Oh, I'm glad we did because if we would try to get it yeah. changed today, it would be a nightmare. Oh, it would. Yep. 1982, the Tasmanian Wilderness Society, led by Bob Brown, stages a blockade at the Franklin Dam site in Tasmania, which continues until 1983. So, yeah, as we the referendum we were talking about was in 1981. You can see that the whole thing went on for a few years. Uh, 1993, the Australian Football League announces that the Fremantle Football uh, Club will enter the league in 1995. Uh, December 15th, upon his 1900, upon his arrival in Australia, the first Governor-General, Lord Hopeton, commits the so-called Hopeton blunder. Uh, basically, this was... Uh, 
a political event immediately prior to, to Federation of the British Colonies in Australia. So the, the, the Governor-General, um, he was the Earl of Hopeton and um, Lord Hopeton, he had to choose who was going to be in charge and he made the controversial choice of choosing um, choosing whoever was the um, most populous, whoever was Premier of the most populous colony to form a government. And that was New South Wales. Its Premier was Sir William Lynn, but Lynn had only been Premier for um, a, a short time. Uh, and had only supported Federation at the last minute because he'd been a, a strong opponent. Opponent, He was unpopular with the other uh, the states, unpopular with the pro-Federation politicians, um, including Edmund Barton, who you know, became Australia's first Prime Minister. Uh, so basically, uh, where, where was it? There was... a. Edmund Barton that summed up by many people's views when it editorialised. Uh, trying to think who did editorialise this. There was an editorial written that said, among the men who can claim by merit or accident to be front-rank politicians of Australia, Lynn stands out as conspicuously as almost the Dullest and most ordinary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we need to bring back that sort of slander. That's yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. So, look, basically, Lynn didn't, Lynn didn't, didn't get up. Um, uh, Barton became the, the the first prime minister. He put Lynn in to his his cabinet as minister for home affairs. But yeah, the Hopeton blunder was. Um, Lord Hopeton, the seventh uh, Earl of Hope, John Hope, Lord seventh Earl of Hopeton, just not understanding what was going on. So yeah, being given a given a You're job. You're kidding! A yeah. British, a British <laughs> no. politician given a job that he doesn't understand in a in a country he's never been to before. Goodness <laughs> gracious! Outrageous! That's, that's the first and only time that's happened. I'm sure. <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> 1905, women in Queensland are given the right to vote in state elections. Uh, pretty early after Federation, that's good. December 16th, 1824, explorers Hamilton Hume and William Hovell arrive in the area the Aborigines called Kareo in a bay, in a bay called Geelong. So that is modern-day Geelong and Kareo Bay, Bay. Yeah. So, yeah, that was spelt, well, I mean, it's Romanized, J-I-L-O-N-G. Um, but, yeah, that's where it is down there. Uh, 1929, the Rothbury riot in which police shoot at locked-out miners, killing Norman Brown. Uh, I didn't get details of that one, so maybe another time. Ah, maybe another 12 months because this, uh, these, some of these things come around. Some of them are new, but every now and then I think, oh, yeah, I remember that, that one. 1947, the reconstructed Regent Theatre in Melbourne opens after it uh, was, was burnt down in 1945. 1948, HMAS Sydney, the first aircraft carrier of the Royal Australian Navy, is commissioned. One of, one of only two. One of only two. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, um, it was an ex-Royal Navy 
ship, but uh, built for the war that was it was never finished. So we bought it off them. I think it was finished for Australia. Um, and then we had the Melbourne a few years after that. So do, do, are you saying Australia's only got two aircraft carriers? Only ever had two aircraft carriers. Yeah. We don't. We don't. We currently don't have any because we we have LHDs, landing helicopter docks. Uh, they're actually bigger than our aircraft carriers, but we can't launch aircraft off them because they we don't have any aircraft that can launch off them, and we don't have the arresting cables and da 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 da. da. So technically, they're not aircraft carriers, but they look like aircraft carriers. <laughs> so the layperson, they're a flat top ship. Most people think they're aircraft carriers, but they're not. The new ones. These were genuine aircraft carriers. Uh, okay, because I remember being up in uh, Sydney and having having breakfast at, uh, was it Boy Charlton, and, and looking across at um, the, the, where the, a few of the Navy ships are docked there and seeing one, I thought, oh, that's obviously an aircraft carrier just because it had that um, that sort of upturned thing at the the front that looked like it was, was set up to launch aircraft yep. the, the the ski ski ramp yep. yeah yeah you're probably looking at the the canberra the hms canberra um but yeah they are not are not currently set up to launch aircraft you could you could actually launch a short takeoff aircraft uh like the f-35b the b variant which can land vertically uh you could launch them off the canberra we just don't have any of them we have the f-35a which is the air force variant which cannot land uh on on an aircraft carrier so it looks like an aircraft carrier it smells like an aircraft carrier Ah. it's not an aircraft carrier (laughs) that's a Um, duck (laughs) <laughs> yeah, just because uh, a, a different capability. But, yes, I can understand why people look at it and go, ah, oh, this is an aircraft carrier. It's not. Exactly what I did, but now, I, now but I know. Yeah. Now, if, now if I'm ever there in the, the future and I hear someone talk about the aircraft, I'll be able to be lean like, over well, in an uncomfortable manner of a stranger and say, well, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, technically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> them slowly back away. But they are bigger. The LHDs are bigger than the old... HMAS Sydney and the HMAS Melbourne, which were our two genuine aircraft carriers. Hmm. There you go. December 17th, 1927, batsman Bill Ponsford scores 437 for Victoria against Queensland at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. Now, even you and I with our extensive cricket experience knows that's an absolute shirt load. <laughs> 437. Now, some people say he was just showing off. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's not a bad score. 1967, Prime Minister Harold Holt goes swimming at Cheviot Beach on Point Nepean, Victoria, and is never seen again, which I think uh, regular listeners to the podcast would uh, know Harold Holt because he tends to um, bob up. Uh, well, I suppose he didn't bob up that day, but he tends to <laughs> he tends to bob up in a lot of a uh, lot of stories and and mentions as well as the history. He's definitely become 
like f- folklore. Australian folklore yeah. loves to bring up Harold Holt, uh, and of course, everyone brings this up every time. There is a swimming pool named after him. Yes, it's hilarious. <laughs> that's that's just what we do. It is. It is a bit funny, really. Uh, 1980, two gunmen killed Turkish Consul General Mehmet Beydar in Sydney and the killers were never apprehended. Uh, Final day, December 18th, 1894, South Australia is the first colony to to give women equal franchise with men. Uh, probably beat Victoria to that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Victoria. Oh, um, <laughs> 1902, the mayors of Sydney and Melbourne are conferred the title of Lord Mayor. Oh, it's just grand. It's just a pity they don't have more decorations and even grander titles and get carried around in pennicans. <laughs> <laughs> and finally... Uh, 1903, the first train runs from Rockhampton to Brisbane. In 1903. I feel like it would have been earlier than that, but that is a long way. It's a, you know, that's a good, today, Rockhampton to Brisbane, that's a good, oh, shit, probably five to six hour drive. Like, it's a, actually, maybe even more than that. It's probably closer to seven hour drive. Like, it is a long way. So. That's a fair way, yeah. Yeah, I guess it would have taken a long time to lay all those tracks and everything. So, yeah. Well, look, true, true, and I'm sure that on the uh, the first train from Rockhampton yeah. to oh, Brisbane, thirsty, thirsty work building those tracks. Exactly, and each day they would have stopped and said, "You know what? I feel like a trivia question and a beer." Now we've got. <laughs> Again, has become custom to Forex Bottle Top questions. And these are actually, these are from the Forex Bottle Top Ooh. ones. So. Collected I, these while you were in Queensland, I'm sure. I, I, I literally collected these while I was in Queensland. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you exactly right. Spot on. Now, the first one, uh, well, hmm. I reckon that you'll either know these or be able to reason them out. Okay. So, yeah. So not to <laughs> not not to set, set you up too much, but I, I reckon they might be in your in in our wheelhouse. So, which of the seven wonders of the world is located in Australia? Oh, okay. I have to qualify this. Are we talking the natural wonders of the world? Oh, you're you're absolutely spot on because when I looked up uh, the list of wonders of the world, there's so many freaking wonders. There's the yeah. ancient world. There's How to the qualify it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So perfect qualifier. Which of the seven natural wonders of the world is located in Australia? Oh, there's two that immediately jump to mind, and there's probably only two because you'd think it would be Uluru, but it could also oh. be the Great Barrier Reef because the reef is is certainly uh, a big deal as well. So, 
I don't know which one to go with. It could be either. I'm not sure. Oh, the Uluru is a very interesting choice. Which is your answer? <laughs> All right, I will. Say, I said Uluru first, so we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Uh-uh. <laughs> 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 I deliberately led you into that. Yeah, it's a Great Barrier Reef. Now, when you said Uluru, I thought, oh, that's a great choice. I wonder why that's not on the list of um, whoever wrote whoever wrote this list. That's it. We we need to have a chat. Yeah. Well, look, this was this uh, this particular version. The current version is a list compiled by CNN in 1997. So oh, bloody, bloody Americans setting me yeah. astray. <laughs> but look, the um, I, I probably tend to agree with uh, their, their list on there. It's uh, the Aurora in Earth's high latitude regions around the Antarctic and the Arctic, the Grand Canyon in Arizona, United States, uh, Great Barrier Reef off, off Queensland, uh, the harbour of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I've got to say, know nothing about that. Didn't uh, know nothing about it at all. Huh. Uh, Mount Everest on the borders of Nepal and China. That one's understandable. The Paracutian volcano located in the state of uh, Mequon in Mexico. Never heard of that. Have you? No. No. And the last one, which I have heard of, Victoria Falls on the border of Zambia and Zimbabwe. Oh, yes. And apparently, it's funny you said that you've heard of it because apparently uh, you can actually hear the falls from miles and miles and miles away. It's just this rumbling that goes on for, for, you know, 30, 40 Ks before you get to the falls sort of thing. So, yeah. Well, yeah, look, they look impressive in the photos. Haven't seen them in person. Who knows? But, um, yeah. This one, I reckon you'll be able to reason. Uh, what is the gemstone emblem of Australia? It's got to be opal. Yeah, 100%. It's the Australian's national gemstone. And the, according to the Office of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, Australia's national gemstone is the opal. A stone famous across the world for its brilliant colours. In Indigenous stories, a rainbow created the colours of the opal when it touched the earth. Oh, I didn't know that one, but that's a that's not a bad story. Um, I don't, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I can sort of, I can, I can see that. Uh, Bill Hayden, um, the Governor General, proclaimed the opal Australia's national. Oh, actually, I'll proclaim the. Opal, Australia's national gemstone, on 23rd of July in what year? I sort of gave it away a bit by saying Bill Hayden, but yeah. I don't know what year Bill Hayden... I have no idea what year Bill Hayden was Governor General. I don't know. 19... 60, but I don't know. 1993, yeah. 1993, there you go. I probably should have known that now that you say that. (laughs) There you go. Uh, And just for our permissions not required to produce images or illustrations of the natural gemstone. How generous of them. Uh, How generous of them. Yeah, well done. I thought, look, I'd sort of, I would give you that. um, Well, that's a 1.5. (laughs) <laughs> but that was that was a little bit of a bastard act by me on the the, the first one to lead you down the path of Uluru. Well, to be fair, I did say Uluru first, so you know 
First counts. That's how it works. You, you did, but if I hadn't been scamming you a little bit, I think you might have got, <laughs> <laughs> got the Barrier Reef. Yeah, I'm upset that the Uluru wasn't on there as well. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at australiansubreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out with the algorithm immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember... And r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thanks for listening and tell your mum I love her. <laughs> See you, DK. See ya. <laughs>